0: This is My Rank Edges Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Gemma Pearl, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, I talk to Monash University's Neville Nichols about the El Nino Southern Oscillation, and more specifically, what the El Nino phase means to conditions in Australia.
1: I'm Neville Nichols. I'm an emeritus professor at Monash University in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment. I've been there since 2005. And before that, I'd spent 35 years in the Bureau of Meteorology. I was originally trained back in 1971 as a forecaster, never did any forecasting. Uh, My family think Australia is much better for me, never having made a, a weather forecast but went straight into research and stumbled across the El Nino and droughts and I've been studying them ever since with a bit of climate change thrown in over the last 25 or 30 years as well I'm retired so that's what emeritus means it means um, you, you can turn up but they don't pay you um, but I, I still retain some interest the important thing about El Nino is we can use it to predict the weather. The main reason we can use it to predict the weather is because of this, the way it's tied to the annual cycle. So once it starts it uh, around March or April, it tends to build and build and build until the end of the year and then collapse uh, early in the following year. So that gives the really crucial bit that helps us make predictions of droughts and tropical cyclone activity around the Australian region and many other parts of the world. It's this long life cycle, but it's not just a random phenomenon, unlike most things in the atmosphere. But I've always thought of myself having a strong, to very strong one about once a decade, El Niño I mean, a strong La Niña about once a decade, and a couple of weaker ones on either side in there as well. And yeah, and a few things where not much happens. But as with Australian climate, it's not a nice normal distribution. There are more droughts and floods in Australia than than there should be. And that's because we're affected by the El Nino. Everywhere in the world that's affected by the El Nino southern oscillation has much higher variability of rainfall or temperature, if it affects temperature, than other parts of the world. And that's why Australia is a land of droughts and flooding rains, is because of El Nino Southern Oscillation.
0: The term El Nino can be confusing as it means different things to different people, while also being one part of a wider system.
1: We're talking about a few things all at once. So it seems like a simple concept if we define El Nino, but it is several things and people like me tend to use for different meanings interchangeably, just to add to the confusion so if perhaps if i start with the simplest one the simplest definition is that it's unusually warm water in the eastern equatorial pacific that occurs every few years peaks around christmas time it's been known by to the local fishermen and the local farmers on the south american coast for hundreds and hundreds of years it's called el nino because el nino is spanish for boy child. And so because it appeared around Christmas time, people attributed or wanted th- thought of it in a sense as, as for Christ child. And it, it brought unusual gifts to an area of, a, of along the, the coast of South America. Once you get off the equator, there's normally a cold current that comes up from the south. and when el nino comes you get this warm water which actually comes from the tropics so you get tropical gifts if you like appearing on the coast so again it was a gift so for all those reasons this thing was called el nino and that's the one meaning of it that's uh, the local south american meaning is that it's this unusual warm water that lasts months but uh, peaks around christmas time every now and again we then have to get down to sort of How do you monitor it? So we monitor it one way with Nino indices, that's indices of sea surface temperatures along the equatorial Pacific, but we also use something called the Southern Oscillation Index, which is just really the difference in atmospheric pressure between Tahiti and Darwin. And those things combined, those monitoring things, are what we use to monitor this El Nino Southern Oscillation. So there's a whole variety of indices some of which are clearly related to El Nino, some of which are, but aren't obviously related through their definition. So it's complicated, but I'm hoping it's not too complicated.
0: The question is, when did we first discover that El Nino affected Australian rainfall?
1: So perhaps if I can describe sort of how I got into research in El Nino, and that was in in 1971 when I'd finished training as a forecaster and decided never to forecast, went into research, in 1972, basically the first job we had in the research section of the Bureau of Meteorology I went into was to look at a severe drought that was occurring in the Papua New Guinea Highlands at the time. Now at the time Papua New Guinea was, a, I think it was called a protectorate of Australia and it was about to become fully independent. And I were struck by this devastating drought caused the loss of many lives. And the Australian government thought they should do something about it. So they asked the Bureau of Meteorology to examine the drought and work out what's causing it. And we looked at it, and we wrote a report that said, well, it was a drought because there wasn't any rain, or not as much rain as normal, and there wasn't as much rain as normal because there wasn't much cloud. And that's about basically what it was, all we could say. Until the following year, the following year, as data dribbled in from all across the world, I realized that, 1972 had been a really strong El Nino event. So people knew about El Nino events at that stage, but we couldn't really monitor them in real time. There were research vessels monitoring sea surface temperatures, but it would take months for us to get the data. So it was a year after the after the drought and after the El Nino, but we actually knew it was an El Nino that was related. And I went back and looked at previous El Ninos and realized something But Sir Gilbert Walker, a meteorologist in India, had known a long time ago that rainfall in this area was related to El Nino events and southern, El Nino Southern Oscillation uh, events. So, and then it sort of grown from there as people develop built models, statistical models and computer models of how El Nino worked, everything just got sort of mixed up. And we end up with this idea that we call the whole phenomenon ENSO or El Nino Southern Oscillation. But one of the extremes of the El Niño events, which is what the big focus was on for many years, was on the droughts rather than the La Niña side. So that's, that's one of the reasons why it's complicated. Another reason it's complicated it goes back further in time, well before me, back to, the, to 1877. And 1877, there was a really severe drought in India, British controlled India. And Henry Blanford, who was the indian meteorological reporter to the indian government what we'd call the director of meteorology now he recognized how bad the the drought was there were big inquiries about this drought caused a lot of political problems in uh, back in england but he recognized that atmospheric pressures were very high over india and the surrounding regions at the time so he sent messages out through telegram i guess to all the meteorologists that he knew of basically in the Empire, in the British Empire. One of these messages came to Charles Todd, who built the Overland Telegraph between Adelaide and Darwin, but was also the meteorological observer for South Australia at the time. In 1877, he just put it away, he recognised that pressures were very high over Australia as well, just put that little observation away. Until the next drought in 1888, Todd wrote an article about droughts in Australia and said when had gone back somehow and found data and realized that Indian droughts and Australian droughts tended to coincide and usually in the same year. So they've been in 1877, but also this one in 1888 and previous ones. And that's really the first evidence we've got of someone recognizing these, what we now call teleconnections between climate in completely different parts of the world. And again, that was just put away. I don't think anybody ever found it again, that observation, until I actually wrote a paper about the 1888 drought 100 years later. But Blanford's successes continued to work on the Indian droughts and this very high pressure that was seen across India. And, they, and Sir Gilbert Walker, in the 1910s and 1920s, started to correlate everything with everything else to look at what was correlated with Indian rainfall and he developed this index, this statistical relationship that he called the Southern Oscillation. And it was an oscillation between the Indian Ocean area and the Pacific Ocean area in pressure. So when pressure in India went up for a long time, it stayed down in in the Pacific. And he recognised that this was related to lots and lots of weather events, including rainfall over Australia, rainfall over India, but also in many other parts of the world. For many years, the Southern Oscillation was what it was known as. This was probably up until the 1960s when other meteorologists realized that it was also related to this phenomenon being investigated separately, this El Nino phenomenon of occasional hot water or anomalously warm water in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific and realized the two were related. So they all eventually got dumped in together, clumped in together, called the El Nino Southern Isolation. Since that's happened, it has been another 60 or so years of research of people adding more confusion and occasional a little bit of light as to what's causing what and how it can be used. But so it has really long historical roots. And I really love the fact that an Australian was the first back in 1888 to, um, to recognize these huge teleconnections across enormous distances. Uh, that we now call the El Nino Southern Oscillation.
0: So the two phenomena started being officially recognized together as ENSO in the 1960s.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's two stories of that. The conventional wisdom is that it was a, a climate scientist called Jacob Bjerknes. I always forget whether he's Norwegian or Scandinavian, probably Norwegian. And he certainly wrote it down in, in the sixties the in about 1966, something like that, but the Dutch who colonised Indonesia and were in control of Indonesia had, had realised that they were related probably in the 50s. And there are a lot of reports written by the Dutch meteorologists, one in particular called Berlager, but they, they just sit there in, labor, in, in libraries never referred to. Um, I suspect I'm, a, I'm the one remaining climate scientist with his interest in this area who actually remembers uh, the, these documents. Uh, but they did a lot of terrific work relating El Nino and, and Southern Oscillation and realising yeah, they, they were a, a truly linked phenomenon, that it wasn't just one thing causing the other, but it was the, the ocean and the atmosphere interacting, which caused these big variations in and, and caused things like El Nino. So I want to attribute, yeah, first of all, Charles Todd, and then the, the Dutch meteorologists who were working in Indonesia at the time.
0: Now that we have better defined what we mean by El Nino, you're probably wondering, how does one form?
1: The trade winds sort of a dominant force over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they, they blow basically from the southeast. When they hit the equator, they tend to, to blow directly west. Doing that causes up what's called upwelling. It calls, just because of the way the Earth rotates... If you've got winds coming from the east along the equator, they tend to diverge instead of going straight along the equator. They they fan out. That means you've got water leaving the surface of the equator, and so that gets replaced by cold water from below. So and the water below is colder. So that keeps uh, cool water right along the equator, a, a few degrees each side of the equator from the South American coast. Basically, nearly all the way over to um, to, the, to the western Pacific. So that's what n- normally happens. But then, if those winds, those e- those winds from the east, are disrupted, particularly over in the, the western side of the Pacific, you sometimes get an anomalously strange westerly winds. That sets up what's called a Kelvin wave in the ocean, and as a result of that that disrupts the upwelling right across the the Pacific and it allows the ocean to warm up anomalously. There are a whole variety of factors which cause that warming, but the major one is that the upwelling of cooler ocean is disrupted. And so suddenly the the ocean all over the equatorial, um, East Pacific and Central Pacific becomes warmer than normal. So the driving force is what happens to the winds. Of course the, the the trick is what causes this change these changes of the wind in the western equatorial Pacific. It's due to an interaction between the winds and the ocean, very much around the Indonesian, New Guinea, far west Pacific region, I think. Um, and to do with the change in prevailing winds. For half the year, the prevailing winds there are from the east. The other half a the year, they're from the west. It's just what's called a, a monsoon reversal of the wind. And it's a tricky thing, but those winds directly affect the ocean temperature. If they're stronger than normal, they, they cause mixing of the ocean and so the ocean surface tends to be a bit cooler but in turn the sea surface temperatures there affect the overlying atmosphere and they affect it in a way that was looked at by this guy Bjergnes who was one of the first people who put um, sea surface the El Niño and Southern Oscillation together and you do the maths and you can see that you can actually By looking at those interactions, you can explain some of the really, really crucial things about El Nino. And there are several things about El Nino. It's not a random thing. It doesn't just come and go completely randomly. It tends to start around March and April. It tends to last about 12 months long. It tends to peak around Christmas. No matter what index you use, whether you use a Southern Oscillation Index or any of the Nino indices that's basically what happens and that's a a crucial thing that we have to explain with any explanation of what happens with El Nino that it's not random it lasts about 12 months and it starts and finishes around us at the same time you look back at all of the big El Ninos uh, that we've seen in the last 120 years nearly all of them have that pattern and I think you can explain that because of this interaction between the prevailing winds and the underlying ocean in the west pacific indonesia and far eastern indian ocean i guess so that again has to be a, a part of the whole thing that we're trying to explain of, a, of an, the ENSO and the el ninos is that there's clearly positive feedback from may through to november but that feedback disappears and the el nino starts to dissipate my explanation of it is that it's due to the reversal of the prevailing zonal winds, the east-west winds, over the West Pacific and Eastern Indian Ocean.
0: What do we know of the mechanism that actually causes it to be drier?
1: I think it's something that, unfortunately, we've never really tied down as well as we'd like to. But in hand-waving terms, what happens is that you've got this positive feedback Um, north of Australia, it's over a large part, it's still a long way from from Victoria, but it's a lot closer than the the central or eastern equatorial Pacific. So you've got this phenomenon, this caused by this large scale tropical ocean atmosphere interaction stretching all the way from the eastern Indian Ocean to the west coast of South America. And you've got two things happening through May through to November. At that stage, anomalously warm water is starting to appear in the Equatorial Pacific and in the Eastern Equatorial Pacific, Central Equatorial Pacific. At the same time, during an El Nino event, sea surface temperatures around Northern Australia are colder than normal. And that lasts through till the end of the year. And at the end of the year, you get a, a remarkable change, that you suddenly get warm water around Northern Australia at the end of an El Niño. That's one of the first signs that an El Niño is on the way out. And that cold water is associated with very high atmospheric pressures over our region, stretching from India through to New Guinea and south to Hobart. So it's a huge area of very high pressure associated with that. It's high pressure, so it's a stable system, so there's less cloud. You've got subsiding air over much of Australia, anomalously subsiding air. So all of those things act to actually increase the likelihood of of drought over Australia. So if you've got a big patch, a long lasting patch of of high pressure, you're going to force uh, the cold fronts to to track further south uh, along with the rain depressions that normally bring us what rain we get. They tend to be pushed further south by this large patch of um, of, of atmospheric pre- high atmospheric pressure. Now it's a hand-waving explanation, but I think it, th- there's quite a germ of truth in there that that's what's happening. But it's not this little patch of water on which it's still a fairly large patch in the eastern equatorial Pacific. It's not that by itself directly affecting for rainfall in Birchip. It's it, it's much more thing, things which are closer by but are part and parcel of this whole phenomenon that we call the El Niño Southern Oscillation. So while well, I said uh, the El Niño is not random, I meant it's not random once it starts and, and the fact that it, it only starts at a certain time of year. It, does, it, it doesn't suddenly appear in November, for instance. It starts around March and April and I think that's to do with this changing prevailing wind, but you still need something to start it off and that can be a random thing and it can be a a partially random thing like the the MJO, the Madden-Julian Oscillation, which causes shorter term fluctuations of the atmosphere and the ocean all around the world, but particularly obvious around Indonesia and New Guinea. I, I think almost certainly you get a big pulse from an MJO that might affect the sea surface temperatures in a way that's just just right to actually start what's a, a positive feedback so something happens a change in the wind in the uh, in the indonesian region affects the ocean in a certain way and then you start to get a build up and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and slowly built up into what we see as a, an el nino towards the end of the year um, so yeah I have no doubt that the MJO plays a role, but I don't think we've ever been able to really tie it down and I think that suggests that it's not the only thing you could do to start it up.
0: Given Neville's many years studying the El Nino, I wanted to know what were the key things he looks out for?
1: I'm probably a bit idiosyncratic and old-fashioned with this, but and and lots of my younger and smarter colleagues build models computer models of the El Nino and they would put their faith in what the, old, the models are saying and, and I'm, I'm increasingly drawn to that but my old-fashioned view, if I was just if I was just looking at data, the first thing I'd look at from April onwards is um, Darwin pressures. If, if a pressure at Darwin is consistently well above average in April and certainly by the time you get into May, then it's time to start getting a bit concerned. It's not some, it's, it's not the time to sell the farm, but it's a terrific predictor. In 1982, uh, a colleague and I were sitting there looking at very high pressures through May in 1982, and we kept on asking our Northern Hemisphere colleagues, is there an El Nino? And everybody kept on saying, no, of course there's not an El Nino. If anything, it's going to be the opposite. it's It's all cool out there. And it wasn't until about a year later that people realised that um, the explosion of El Chacon, a southern uh, South American volcano, had corrupted the satellite uh, images of sea surface temperatures and cooled them anomalously. And it really was very warm under there. So I've always had a, a fond spot for Darwin pressure because it's A, it's simple, B, we can look, We know how good the observations are because we take them, <laughs> um, and it's really simple. So yeah, so April and May Darwin pressures. It's not perfect. Like nothing about the El Nino is a perfect predictor. Uh, it's not something you want to bet, bet your last shirt on. But it's it, it it There's enough information in there to make you think. Oh, are there th- things that we can take a little bit more quietly this year or is, does it look like a year we can actually put more money into planting things? So you can you can do things around the edges with a prediction even as early as that, I think, just looking at the Darwin pressure.
0: It is not uncommon to have two La Nina years back-to-back. But what about El Ninos?
1: It's something I've always worried, wondered about and worried about that year. We can go back and, and find back-to-back La Ninas. Without too much trouble, but yeah, much harder to find back to back El Ninos. But I would hate any farmer to actually say, well, we've got through that El Nino, so everything's home and hosed from now on. I'm hoping no one would ever say that because uh, climate has a way of kicking us, as I'm sure all your listeners know better than than I do. But um, that's when you think you've got a hold on it, well, it does something terrible to you.
0: One thing that the BREAK team were interested in hearing from Neville about is what do we know about whether climate change is making it harder to predict El Nino's?
1: So I guess from my professional point of view, the worst thing about climate change is that it makes it harder for me to diagnose what's going on in the natural climate. Like the El Nino southern oscillation thing is part of a natural climate. It's been going on for hundreds, probably many thousands of years and we're just at the point that over the last few decades of getting enough of a handle on to actually, for it to be useful. Then along comes climate change, and makes us really struggle because we're dealing with the same thing. One of our big indicators of how the climate system is working in the natural climate system is sea surface temperature. But if sea surface temperatures are just gradually warming, as they have over the last, particularly over the last 50 years, that just makes it hard for us to diagnose what hap- is happening. And it makes the simple models that I tend to think of using statistics, it makes you really nervous about using them. And you have to then rely on the, the more advanced computer models that my younger colleagues produce. So yeah, so, so climate change is it, it, it's an issue for the way it disrupts the natural climate variability and our ability to to diagnose what's going on. It does make it harder. Uh, The warming we've seen of a degree or more than a degree in the last 100 years, that's a pretty sizable percentage of the the variations in sea surface temperature we get from year to year due to a natural variability. So it's something we have to think about coping with and work out if it's going to continue, how is it going to disrupt? Of uh, a natural climate variability in the future.
0: We greatly appreciate Neville spending time with us in this episode. In the show notes, you can find more information and links to El Nino content. You can also get in contact with us at the.break and agriculture.vic.gov.au.
1: Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauges Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and follow wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria and the Tribe oh ts and what on earth is an iod can someone please explain to me stay up to date get the break Oh, this bro, Dale, he's a richy He knows about the subtropical ridge. The science comes in a secret code. But he knows about the southern annular mode. Well, this SST anomaly lead us to a decel of 1, 2, 3. The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before. About SOI and SSTs. And what on earth is an IOD? Could someone please explain, explain to, me. to me Stay get up to date and get the break. break Or keep your eyes out for Enso Will it rain then if so, when so The farmers need you to be specific What's happening out in the Pacific Will westerly windbursts blow away All our hopes of that rainy day And will this year bring an El Nino Come on, tell us now 'Cause we have to know about S O S and S S T S and what on earth is an I O D? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date. Get it right. SORs and S S T S and what
0: on earth is an I O D? Can someone please explain to me?
1: Stay up to date.
0: Get it right.